0: Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. What interferes with your happiness? What are some things standing in the way of being the best version of you? For a lot of people, life, your past, and sometimes your current situation can cause roadblocks in your life. Mental health is incredibly important, and so many, including myself, can benefit from talking to a professional and working to dismantle those roadblocks. That's why I'm excited to talk to you guys about... BetterHelp BetterHelp knows no two people are the same and will help to assess your personal needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. These incredibly convenient appointments are in a safe and completely private online environment, and you can start chatting with your new therapist in under 24 hours. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling. You can message with your counselor at any time and get a timely response plus schedule weekly video or phone sessions, which means no driving to an office, no waiting rooms and no awkward small talk. Just meaningful sessions with experts who specialize in things like depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, trauma, family conflict, LGBTQ matters, grief and so much more. There is truly someone there for everyone. And BetterHelp is committed to finding your perfect match, which means if you and your counselor don't mesh for whatever reason, they make it easy and free to seek someone new if needed. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counseling. And with financial aid available and access worldwide, they truly make it easy for anyone to seek the help they need. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash morningcup. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a... Homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cup of murder. Some stories become ingrained in a state's history and become part of the folklore passed down from generation to generation. Which, of course, makes for a great story, but can sometimes muddy up the facts. On July 12, 1833, an 18-year-old Appalachian mountain girl was killed at the gallows for the brutal murder of her young husband, and while her name is cemented in North Carolina's history, many still argue whether she was a brutal murderer or if her case was just one big miscarriage of justice. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Frances Stewart, born in 1814 or 15, was described as beautiful, strong, and extremely intelligent, and was barely a teenager when she married her neighbor's only son in what was referred to as a love match. She was 14, he was 17 or 18, and just a year later, the young, seemingly perfect couple had a baby girl that they had named Nancy. Shortly after their quick marriage, Charlie Silver, a mountaineer in Kona, North Carolina, who had once been described as extremely well-liked and agreeable, began abusing alcohol, and pretty quickly, this turned into spousal abuse. Frankie, as everyone called her, tried to deal with her husband's heavy hand, but at some point decided that she had had enough. Shortly before Christmas, on December 22, 1831, Frankie Silver reported her husband missing. So, of course, police showed up at the little cabin that they shared with 13-month-old Nancy to investigate where the young man could be and, instead of finding evidence of his absence, found parts of his dismembered body. According to the stories, police found a fireplace filled with oily ashes, a pool of blood that flowed through the cabin's floor, splatters on the wall, and small pieces of bone and flesh inside the mortar hole near the spring. As the family lore goes, Frankie hacked her abusive husband to death and, that very night, enlisted help to dispose of the body in the cabin's fireplace, which was far more difficult and and took much longer than they anticipated. Though at the time, police weren't sure exactly what happened, there was enough evidence to cast suspicion upon Charlie's young wife Frankie. But realizing she couldn't have acted alone added her mother Barbara Stewart and brother Jackson to the list and all three were arrested on January 9, 1831. By the 13th Isaiah Stewart had obtained a writ of habeas corpus stating that his wife daughter and son were being illegally detained and on January 17th the charges were dropped for both Barbara and Jackson with Frankie's sticking. The two were formally dismissed on March 17, 1832, and Frankie was formally indicted for murder and remained in a Morgantown jail. Frankie's trial began on March 29, 1832, and lasted just two days. She, through her lawyer, Thomas Wilson, entered a not guilty plea and maintained that she did not kill her husband. Now, if this trial happened today, Her lawyer would have likely argued that, while she did take her husband's life, it was an act of pure self-defense and fear. But this wasn't the case in 1832. Things were much more black and white, and as far as the evidence went, there was very little arguing Frankie's guilt. And the laws at the time didn't help. Defendants weren't allowed to testify in criminal cases until the 19th century, so all of the witnesses in the case came to the stand and painted her as a young, jealous wife who butchered her kind-hearted husband while he slept peacefully in his bed. Facts that Frankie herself could not get on the stand and dispute. The evidence, while abundant, was still largely circumstantial, and the all-male jury remained deadlocked for quite some time before asking to rehear some of the testimony. After they did, they found Frances Stewart Silver guilty of murder and sentenced her to hang. The Supreme Court upheld the verdict, and an execution date was set. Now, a number of things about Frankie's trial, with today's knowledge and know-how, set off some red flags— In addition to the lack of self-defense argument, the refusal to allow the defendant to testify, and an all-male jury, when that jury asked if they could rehear the witness testimonies, they were allowed to mingle and discuss the case while they waited. According to the stories, it was after this little mixer that a number of the testimonies changed and that the once deadlocked jury, which was in favor of acquittal, came back with a guilty verdict. Given all of this, her lawyers attempted to appeal her sentence, but the North Carolina Supreme Court denied the motion, though she was granted some reprieve when the presiding judge grew severely ill and had to cancel the execution. This judge would later be elected governor, meaning that he had the ability to stop Frankie's execution and fully pardon her, but chose not to. While everyone awaited her execution, the public opinion about her case began to shift people started to wonder if this young girl really should be hanged for her crimes. And surprisingly, seven members of the jury that convicted her signed a petition asking the new governor to issue a pardon. He remained steadfast in his original ruling. Tired of waiting for his daughter's death, on May 18, 1833, Isaiah Stewart, accompanied by two other men, broke Frankie out of jail. At this point, about 90% of the community wanted Frankie spared, so it's unknown how many people actually helped with this prison break. But after just a few days, Frankie, now dressed as a man with a short haircut, was rearrested in Henderson County, and her father and uncle were sent to jail as accessories to her escape. On July 12, 1833, despite all of the public support, Frankie Stewart Silver was led to the gallows wearing a white dress gifted to her by the wealthy women in Morganton. As the story goes, just before the rope tightened around her neck, her father yelled out from the crowd, Die with it in you, Frankie, leading many to believe that there was much more to Frankie and Charlie's story than we will ever know. Her father tried to bury her in the family plot, but due to the extreme heat and humidity in North Carolina that year, was forced to bury her in an unmarked grave behind a local tavern. As she took her last breath, Frankie became what is believed to be the first white woman to be put to death in Burke County, North Carolina. And with that same last breath, Frankie became a folk figure for injustice and mystery. The motive for the bizarre case is still not completely clear. While hindsight tells us that she was likely an abused spouse who snapped after one of her latest beatings, a lot of people labeled her as a jealous wife seeking revenge. But... Revenge for what? There was no definitive evidence to prove or disprove either theory, and according to historians, Frankie never shed any details about what happened that night. She and the rest of her family died with all of their secrets. According to a family historian, Wayne Silver, from what he can gather through family stories and knowledge, the following is what likely happened that night in 1831. Charlie, sent out to get the Christmas liquor, did what any 19-year-old holding a bottle would do, and on the walk home, took sip after sip until he was sufficiently drunk. When he came into the house, Nancy was screaming and he began complaining to Frankie. The mood quickly soured when Charlie picked up his gun and said something along the lines of, If you don't shut up, I'm going to shoot both of you. That's when Frankie, who had been dealing with her husband's moods for over a year now, picked up an axe and screamed, I won't let you hurt me or my baby. And with that, Charlie Silver was dead. He claims it was not premeditated, and as far as he was concerned, it was more accident than anything else. Of course, there is no way to know for sure if this is what actually happened, though he does have years of family stories to help form his opinion. Another theory is that Frankie wanted to move west with her parents, but Charlie refused, and that this was enough motive for the murder. Some believe she manipulated her family members to help with the murder, while others think she was just a scared 18-year-old who asked for help hiding her big mistake. In the end, though, this case remains a mystery, with many arguing over the details that have been passed down from generation to generation. Then, in 1963, a young college student and author, Perry Deanne Young, discovered letters and petitions signed by the townspeople asking the governor to pardon Frankie Silver. This discovery turned into a lifelong crusade spearheaded by Perry Young to find out exactly what happened and prove that Frankie was unjustly hanged. These letters disproved the witness testimonies that Frankie was a jealous wife and lent more to accident or self-defense. So, she wrote a book titled The Untold Story of Frankie Silver and produced a number of documents proving Frankie's innocence. The accounts were, of course, controversial, especially for descendants of Charlie Silver, who claims there are no official documents as the author claims. Despite this, the case garnered enough support that a petition was formed to try and posthumously pardon Frankie Silver in 2013. It was unsuccessful, and the mystery continues. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to What Terrible Thing Happened on July 13th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon, or just sharing it with your true crime-obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.